0: Before we begin our main event, a brief reminder that Historically Thinking is now on Patreon. When you become a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room on Patreon, you not only support the podcast's weekly operations, from web hosting to scheduling to audio editing, you also enable us to do more in the future. Benefits that you'll receive as a Common Room member include a special weekly podcast, podcasts dropped in advance when possible, special events online and in the future, live, input on topics, guests, and questions, competitions and prizes, and more. We will continue to produce our regular podcasts, which will still be available for free on Mondays in all your regular podcast feeds. We hope you'll enjoy being part of the Historically Thinking Common Room at Patreon. Just go to Patreon and search for Historically Thinking. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. The Howe family was at the heart of Britain's long 18th century. Connected to the Hanoverian ruling family by blood, they were addicted to Whig politics, high society, warfare, statecraft, and writing letters. In no less than four wars, Howe men bled and died for Britain, leading ships, regiments, fleets, and armies, while at home... The women of the Howe family engage in the politics of supporting and furthering their family's ambition and position. With me to describe the Howes and their importance to Britain and America is Julie Flavel, author of the new book, The Howe Dynasty The Untold Story of a Military Family and the Women Behind Britain's Wars for America. It's a book based on hitherto overlooked or unconsidered sources, providing us with both an exciting narrative and a comprehensive reassessment of this important English family. Julia Flava, welcome to Historically Thinking.
1: Well, thanks very much, Al. I'm really thrilled to be here.
0: So I always said said that the hows are connected to the royal family by blood. Mm -hmm. Uh, But let's begin by setting out the chronological sort of beginning and end points. When does your story, when does your narrative begin and when does it end? And what had the hows been up to the point of this beginning?
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, the Howes, I mean, anyone listening now, they're going to know from the American point of view, the Howes are best remembered for two of their men, Richard Admiral Lord Howe and General Sir William Howe, who were the commanders in chief of the British Army at the start of the American Revolution. And they were an English aristocratic family with their roots in Nottinghamshire. They had a seat at Langer Castle. The dynastic head had the title of Viscount Um, And this all sounds very grand, but the Howes were actually minor aristocracy. Um, Their land holdings were small compared to a grand figure like the Duke of Devonshire. Their seat at Langer was actually a crumbling old mansion house, a late medieval mansion house that had been fortified. And their title was uh, dependent on producing a male heir. A lot of titles were in those days. So if they didn't have a, a, a a, a son descending directly from the present Viscount, that would be the end of the title. Um, And it was also an Irish uh, title, which meant that they weren't in the British House of Lords. So if the House wanted to be in Parliament, they had to go through the messy, expensive procedure of getting elected as MPs for Nottingham, which which they succeeded in doing during the century. Um, And the generation I'm writing about had problems that revolved around these facts of their life. Their father died deeply in debt. So the boys in the family had to find gainful employment. They were all born at sometime after 1720. And that would mean that they'd need posts in the army, the Navy, law, the church, because in the 18th century, those were really the only acceptable uh, means of gainful employment for a member of the aristocracy. And that meant that during the century, this is why the Howe boys ended up becoming, the Howes became a notable military family um, as the boys took up positions in, in the in the armed forces. Um, So you were asking about the origins, more about the origins of the actual family and their royal connections. Um, The the mother of the the generation of Howes we're writing about, the admiral in general, and his sister, who we'll come to, uh, the mother was Charlotte van Kielmanzeg. She was born Charlotte van Kielmanzegg in 1703 in Hanover. And her mother was, this this all gets a bit sinuous, she was the illegitimate half-sister of the man who would become George the first. I hope people are scribbling this down. <laughs> <laughs> you, you need to have a sheet in front of you to aid memoir, you know? So she was was effectively the niece, the half niece of George the uh, first, but illegitimately. <laughs> her mother was, yeah. So her mother was um, his illegitimate sister. So she, she actually um, was very, very familiar with the court of Hanover. And when George I came to ascend the throne of Great Britain in 1714, the Kielman's eggs the von Kielmanseggs, crossed the British Channel with him and took up a home in London. And um, Charlotte, her name was Charlotte von Kielmansegg. Uh, she was 11 at the time. Um, in 1719, she married... Um, Scrope Lord Howe, he was the second Viscount Howe. Um, so again, I've described he was, you know, it, it he was for her, I would say I always thought it was a love match because because the Howes weren't, you know, super wealthy and he was only a Viscount, which is a, a lower rank of the aristocracy. And he was only 20 years of age. I I think that they, you know, it wasn't a particularly good catch for someone with royal blood, even even a legitimate royal blood. Um, So she married him. And I also wonder whether in some ways it was a a bid for um, freedom because Charlotte von Kilman's mother, Sophia von Kielmanzegg, was, was this notoriously neurotic controlling woman who actually kind of rattled all of the Royal family and, um actually, she actually was, it's kind of funny, she kind of pressured and nagged her brother, George the I, and his wife hated her and so on. And so I actually always wondered whether so far, uh, Charlotte just wanted to get away from mom, too. So in 1719, she got married and, um, you know, achieved freedom in that way and, and moved out to the crumbling castle in Nottinghamshire. But um, it's a strange kind of freedom by our standards, because over about 16 years of marriage, she had 10 kids. So she, had, so she had ten children. And uh when her, her husband died in 1735, um he, he actually became uh uh governor of Barbados, hmm. um, which must have been an incredible experience for Charlotte, having lived in Germany and then and then England, to to go on a wooden ship all the way to Barbados and spend about three years in what was effectively a large slave compound. Mm -hmm. um and and then he died quite suddenly i think he had got some kind of tropical fever so um at this point she was only in her mid-30s so she returned to england with eight children in tow she still had eight children living um 13 year old um, caroline was the oldest and an infant in arms and the the family was by now very badly in debt um and at that point charlotte uh Charlotte found herself in a position that some noble families found themselves where which was called a minority, mm-hmm. which meant that all the boys in the family were too young to take up lucrative offices. So there was no way to augment their income. Um, so for a number of years, she, they shut down Langer Hall and she shuttled between the houses of two of her sister-in-laws with all these children. <laughs> and in, finally in 1743, she got probably the only paying job a woman like her could get, which is she became a lady-in-waiting at court. And this was to Princess Augusta, who was the mother of George Third, who was at that point just a little boy and a prince. Um, and this now becoming lady, lady-in-waiting, lady um, it paid about 400 pounds a year. Um which isn't that much. I know (laughs) it's, you know, it's an okay income, but most of that money went on clothing because you were expected to dress for the part. And it was very expensive to buy court clothing. And the real value of the job was that it gave you this influence. And um, within short time, she got her boys into positions in 1745, George, her oldest son got into the guards um and, and of course that was a prestigious regiment that was meant to guard the royal family and was usually stationed in London. And he was an ensign at that point. And William, the other son, uh got it got a post as a page, a royal page to George the who was on the throne by then. And and that was a position it to be I think being a a royal page was kind of like getting into Sandringham nowadays. <laughs> Um, you, you learned riding skills. You learned all sorts of skills that would be useful for an army career. You got paid a small amount. And it was often given to boys from wealthy, uh, sorry, from aristocratic, but rather poorly off families. Mm-hmm. So William got this army training and then went into the army. It, so, it, it actually um, reminds
0: me of something like, um, it's also, it has, a, it has the characteristics for even for the impecunious um, aristocrat it has the characteristics of uh, sending your kid off to be apprenticed. You know, which lots mm-hmm. of even gentry people did. Just when you've got eight kids, uh, it's a lot cheaper if you can get one of them apprenticed, so someone else feeds them. And
1: yeah, that's get out exactly of the house, right. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's like it's like paid boarding school. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or something. That's right. Yeah.
1: So, yeah. and that's something that hadn't been known about William too—that he served at court when he was a young man. So, right. So George when George went into the guards, he really, the, the war of the Austrian succession was ongoing at that point. Um, so he went to war pretty much
0: right away. But he, um, but I, I, it is an interesting, and you point this out, he did go to war. Um, hmm. The hopes of the, the very slender hopes of this family are riding on him. Hmm. Uh, but even that's as right. as a very young man, he goes to see combat. And that's, Guards officers in the eighteenth century and beyond are famous for not always seeking combat. You know, yeah, they think uh, they'd get out of it, yeah. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> That's
1: right, yeah.
0: Uh, um but off <laughs> yeah, he go. I have a
1: griping letter from one during the War of Independence saying, Oh God, I'm gonna be sent to New York, yeah. Yeah.
0: Right, exactly. <laughs> nice. So but that, that that says something about him, I think. I mean that he has certain ideas of honor and determination and service. Well,
1: yeah, two things. I mean he was the oldest and usually if a dynasty could afford it, they did not send their oldest golden boy heir into any sort of service. Um but the house had to find gainful employment for the boys. One of the things they weren't gonna do was put them in the navy because the navy was so dangerous. Um so, so he was in the army and yes, George I think George was very ambitious and he he volunteered um with the Sardinian army, which who were allied with the British. During this war. And he appeared, he was at the siege of Bassignano, which the Sardinian army lost to the Spanish, but never mind. And, and he distinguished himself by single handedly capturing two Frenchmen um, and injuring himself. And he got into the London newspapers. So right away, you can see how gung ho George was. And, and by 1747, he was aide de camp to the Duke of Cumberland, who was somebody who really ended up very much liking George and supporting his career.
0: So they're making all the right connections. I mean, he's he's aide de camp to the Duke of Cumberland, famous to Scotsmen, and also to the sort of loser of the Battle of Fontenoy, but still the son of the king. Um, Yes, William is is a page to the king. Um, Mm -hmm. All the royal connections that Sophie has are being employed, Um, and the and the boys are now with their distant relations and they're they're in and they're in yes. rising positions province it's funny you say they don't send their kids to the navy because actually two of the sons end That's up right. as captains could you explain that because richard of course it becomes in many ways the most famous of all of them um and he becomes a royal navy he's a midshipman
1: yeah well what happened was um after the father died and and charlotte uh, charlotte returned to england about a year later, Richard entered the Merchant Marine. And that, uh, Soret doubted that, that the naval historian Soret, because he said, oh, come on, he was an aristocrat, truly he didn't go into the Merchant Marine. But in fact, um, a small percentage of aristocratic sons did go into the Merchant Marine, partly because um, midshipman was the desired rank to enter the Royal Navy. And that was very, very competitive. He needed connections. And at that point, the House had no connections at mm. court. Um, and also sometimes just to get the, the naval experience, people would, you know, the experience at sea, people would join, join the Merchant Marine, even if their intention was eventually to get into the Royal Navy. Um, and, and I think that's, that's something that probably needs to be recognized more. But as I say, the House at this point didn't have the connections. So they did have connections with the East India Company. Um, so, so Richard um, started out as an ordinary seaman. And it, within a couple of years, he got into the Royal Navy. But again, as an ordinary seaman, he wasn't a midshipman. Wait, wait he was an
0: ordinary seaman.
1: Yes, that was his title. Yeah, really. Wow. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and he wasn't. I mean, and 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 I think you know, I always say about Richard, you could, you really could say he was kind of self-made. I mean, if he was any good for starters, there was no wrong. There was nobody really pushing him you know his family did the best they could for him they got him experience it, it, and it
0: makes uh, all the stories of his um his seamanship as a sailor in the war of independence and after make sense when you when you revealed that to me because you know yeah. famously he personally uh led the way in a small boat to the upper the head of the chesapeake bay in august of 1777 um mm-hmm. he had really good practical skills he could tie a knot uh, yeah. He's not your normal. He's a, he is he has horny hands. I mean, he must literally have yeah. had horny hands. Yeah. Oh
1: yeah. yeah, he he really was very much a very very experienced seaman.
0: But then, and, and, but then, amazingly, Thomas Howe stays in the merchant marine, or at least in the east in the East India Company merchant. Yeah, marine. Yeah,
1: that's right. Yeah, um, he he didn't he didn't make the jump into the Royal Navy, and and I actually don't know why that was, but I mean, I wonder whether it comes down to money again, I, because. You know, yeah, because in the merchant marine, of course, wasn't considered to be gentlemanly simply because if you became a, a commander of a merchant marine ship, you were, you invested in your cargo, so you were a trader, you were engaged in trade, and of course, that you couldn't really properly be a gentleman. But I, nevertheless, I think,
0: I, I think that's one yeah. of the ways to become a nabob is to become is to be an East India captain. I mean, you're making. Yeah. I I I don't know. I have to look for the figures, but. I think you could make a considerable percentage on the cargo that you're shipping back in your ship from, you know, Bombay and Calcutta at the time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And of course, I found in in my research, uh, much as I like to think well of all the families I study, that Thomas ended up being done for smuggling at one point in the 1760s. So. (laughs) He <laughs> I mean, tried as hard as he could. Yeah, to make you know, money. it's, it's okay, a yeah.
0: it's a long line of people being indicted for smuggling, and uh, the must have been
1: almost irresistible when they are on the other side of the planet. Eh, those yeah. days,
0: <laughs> and so, uh, you know, and as as John Hancock would explain, the law is just so complex. You know, it's really hard yeah. to avoid being, you know, indicted for smuggling. Yeah, we con- we'll give them the
1: benefit of the doubt. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> right. You're all misunderstanding.
0: So, <laughs> but let's talk about let's talk about the daughters because this is where your research really uncovers lots of stuff so uh caroline in particular yeah um yeah and uh, the, let's go to their her education and how she marries and and sort of marrying strategies amongst the hows because this is really important uh to every aristocratic family and their future but first, yeah. first Caroline's education.
1: Yeah. Well, Caroline, um, she actually, the, the oldest of the house was, was a son named Scrope, who was born in 1719, and he died when he was about eight or nine years old. So Caroline had had an older brother, and then she was the second. So she became the oldest sibling. So she was big sister to them all. And she was the person who... I I'm, I'm, I talk about a lot in my book because I used her letters very heavily to write the book. And and she was she was a very dynamic interesting person. Um she she liked a lot of um, she liked a lot of boys sports. I know she fished, I know she bowled. I just found out the bowling green's been uncovered out, out in uh, Langer. Oh. <laughs> Some archaeologists dug it up. <laughs> she liked to play chess. She was very competitive. And, and she rode with the hunt. And that, that wasn't unknown, uh, for, for women to do that in the 18th century. But she was actually the only listed member of the beaver hunt, um, hmm. at Beaver Castle in, in the century, the only woman on the list. Um, so, you know, so she was, and, but she was also intelligent. And the, the, the issue of women's education in the 18th century, it actually, it actually kind of deteriorated since the Tudor era. Interestingly, in the Tudor era, it was considered prestigious for aristocratic women to be very well educated, to know all sorts of languages and so on. In the 18th century, there'd come to be a dread that a woman who was overly educated would be hard to marry, too brainy, put off the men or whatever, not seem biddable enough. And so the view was that what women needed was social skills and the ability to manage a great household. And that might mean, you know, decorative skills like languages dancing music perhaps art if there was any ability and then the ability to be, to do household accounts so that they could you know manage the fa- the household the the finances um and and you know in extreme situations the duke of argyle had a notorious view that one language was enough for women to speak so he didn't teach any of his daughters a foreign language and the only um lessons they got were from the housekeeper who taught them needlework and accounts. (laughs) So, you know, but that was kind of extreme. Usually people tried to give their daughters a few of the social graces, but Caroline, um, by contrast, understood Latin, Italian, French. Uh, She studied Greek much later in life. She loved math, which was something Ben Franklin commented on. He said, Mm -hmm. I think that's a little unusual in ladies when he met her. And she read very widely, um, you no, know, So she read Pope, Shakespeare, Aeschylus, Thucydides, um, Homer. And, and she also liked to read travel literature. She read novels, all kinds of things. And in fact, um, it, she, she actually declared very, at various times in, in her letters that she wasn't at all musical and she couldn't draw to save her life. So what she was good at was these more cerebral things. Um, and, and I think that the fact that she was good at all these things and that she felt comfortable with it shows that, that the household she grew up in didn't discourage female education. They they probably encouraged it. Um, they weren't worried about having a brainy daughter. And and Caroline actually got rather a reputation for having a masculine mind. I mean, several people commented on that in letters that have survived. And I, and I think it's just because she grew up in this home where I, I think there was a certain... Um, equitable treatment between the men and the women. That's that's what I pick up from it. And it could be partly because at the Court of Hanover, um, there were high ranking intellectual women where Charlotte's mother had been born. And and she may have, you know, imbibed that from coming from that tradition.
0: Sure. That was the that was sort of the tradition dating back to George the First's mother and beyond.
1: That's right, yeah. That's Who's, right. The who electress was, I think, Sophia. Uh, uh,
0: Electra Sophia who is a student and friend of Leibniz so that's right there's there's yes. there's that uh, um you so oh yes ma- marriage um marriage. how do they marry yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well i know when, when you when you, you you asked me about this you said marrying well a guide and yeah. i thought that's a guide okay yeah. money pedigree love that's that's what I thought. that was my answer yeah so, that's
0: that's basically it. money pedigree love that's the that's the descending or in descending order yeah
1: yeah, and the first two were the most important. Um, and the, the, so so you know obviously, the ideal marriage was one that brought together um, wealth and you know, blue blood. Um, and, and the view about love, or you lust if you want, was that it burnt itself out it was an unreliable guide for choosing a partner. So you know, just because two you young people fancy each other didn't mean they were gonna be happy and settling down a married life together and it was much more important to have, you know, subsistence and, and a stable home and have families who supported your marriage. Um, so the tendency was for arranged marriages as the most respectable, the safest kinds of marriages. But during the century, there was an increasing fashion for uh, love matches. And probably, you know, people who read novels at that this time will feel will, you know, see this. There was a, a growing feeling that arranged marriages, particularly very cynical ones that are just seen as a way of promoting family, weren't entirely ethical. And that was just kind of growing at this time. Hmm. But what was a common pattern was for a family that had money, and wanted to elevate itself socially to try to marry into blue blood. And I've mentioned before that that's in fact what the Howes had done in the seventeenth century when a successful wealthy lawyer named John Howe had married an illegitimate daughter of the Earl of Sunderland. That's how they got Slanger Hall in the first place, um, and they, he married Arabella Scrope, and so he married into noble illegitimacy, and and that uh, that. Um, Projected the house into um, the, the gentry of Nottinghamshire, and they eventually acquired a
0: title. And then, um, then they married into Hanoverian illegitimacy. So illegitimacy is right, yeah. <laughs> 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 illegitimacy is the there, were, there. were even other houses
1: who married Stuart yeah. illegitimacy, but <laughs> it's I a don't ch- want to.
0: It's, it's, it's a cheap way of getting royal blood—is to find an Ill, some illegitimate blood. Yeah. Well,
1: connections mattered so much at that time. I mean, any any connections you had, people just worked them and worked them. But but the the, the um the sisters-in-law of um you know Charlotte, the, the Howe girls, the you know the aunts of Caroline and Richard, they they the oldest of them, Mary, she was a, a maid of honor at court. And she managed to maneuver herself into a marriage to the Earl of Pembroke, who was ancient, and he'd been married about three times before. Um, And she didn't have any children by him, which I think was a huge disappointment. But that was very obviously a marriage, you know, purely. She became Lady Pembroke for a while. She provided presided over Wilton Hall, which is a fabulous place. And and. she remained um, a courtesy title of Lady Pembroke for the rest of her life. Uh, by contrast, the younger, her younger sister, Anne, eloped with one of the Morden family, Colonel Morden, and the mother wouldn't talk to her for a while and then gave up and forgot about it, you know, because she was just absolutely not going to marry uh, just for advantage. So um, yeah, you see that Caroline would have seen all of this growing up, the whole, you know, gamut of <laughs> reasons for marrying, watching her aunts, mm-hmm. um, finding partners and so on when she was just a little girl. Um, And her own marriage was to um, a a Buckinghamshire landowner whose name happened to be Howe, because it is quite a common name. Um, But he was no relative, John Howe. Um, And he had a lot in common with her. He, you know, hunted and and, uh, lived the country life. They were very much country aristocracy.
0: The, um, you you say at, at one point... I should, I should find the reference. Oh, here it is. What a shock. Um, you say it's how important it is to reconstruct a private place. Let me read that. So you're reconstructing uh, the private places and spaces occupied by the extended Howe family, both male and female, restores to the women the significant roles they played in the family fortunes. It also recreates the world brothers actually lived in and knew, removing them from the narrow context of military camps and parliamentary politics that has served as a backdrop for their appearances in every previous history. Um, What are these private places and spaces, and what does it mean to reconstruct them?
1: Yeah, okay. Um, The the purpose-built public buildings, which are common now, were a phenomenon of the 19th century. Um, People didn't build houses of parliament. They didn't build council buildings or whatever, administrative buildings. Um, And the House of Commons, um, as you'll know, was was actually existed in an old chapel, the Chapel of St. Stephen's. Which was part of Old Westminster Palace, and of course, Westminster Palace was a, a ramshackle collection of buildings. Really, it wasn't a coherent palace. Everybody remarked on how scruffy it looked. <laughs> so, and and so the House of Commons used to meet in, in what had been a chapel, and it burnt down in 1834, and that's when the present House of Commons, House of Parliament, that's so iconic, was built. So people uh, met in clubs; they met in private homes, which would probably be more or less mansion houses or palaces. Uh, and they, they even met at the racetrack. The Duke of Grafton, when he was prime minister, famously, used to have political meetings at Newmarket. <laughs> and, and so as a result, a lot of politicking took place in private or relatively private spaces. Uh, so be the country homes or townhouses of aristocrats. And of course, the organizers for all this were the women, who presided over the households. They were the political hostesses. So for example, Lady Georgiana Spencer, she was a very close friend of Caroline's and they had, um, uh, they owned a, a, a Spencer house, which is still in London. You can still visit in London. It's one of the few actual palaces left in London. It's quite neat. And they had several country places at Wimbledon and and at Altrop, which is still there, of course, because the Spencers, are. she's an ancestor of Lady Diana. Um, She was a very close friend of Caroline's, I said, and her daughter, the famous Duchess of Devonshire, they were very important people to get to know if you wanted to get an entree into into politics, Um, you know, just getting invited, getting to know them and getting invited to their homes. Um, And they had these huge homes and they had a lot of money so they could entertain on a large, grand scale. But Caroline, Caroline didn't. After 1770, she lived in a townhouse in Grafton Street in London. And it was, you know, it was a Georgian townhouse. Very nice, but small compared to Spencer House. Um, and and uh, her brother Richard lived a few houses down. His house is still there. I, I don't I don't remember whether it has a blue plaque or not. I don't know that, but <laughs> um, but you can still go and see his house in in Grafton Place. Um, and although it's an office building now, and it's a testimony to Caroline's personality that she had a lot of political callers um, who kept her well informed. The Cavendish men, you know, the Duke of Devonshire's relatives, Lord Spencer would drop by. Uh, Lord Shelburne dropped by occasionally when he was prime minister, even George Prince of Wales once he came of age. People used to drop in and visit her. She was very popular. So she, you know, there was this overlap of private and public. And obviously it gave women, you know, access is everything. It gave women access and it gave them influence.
0: Well, let's very briskly talk about um, the Seven Years' War or the French-Indian War, or the First World War, as some of us think of it, (laughs) uh, which is in many ways the making of the house. I mean, it sets the house firmly on this political, military, social, cultural stage. Um, And uh, just to show how that happens, if you go to Westminster Abbey today, you'll find a memorial to George Lord Howe uh, for his death in combat near Ticonderoga, and it's paid for by the colony, the prop, the colony, I think, of Massachusetts,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, which is a very interesting, which is very unsettling perhaps for Massachusetts natives of today. I'm wondering why that's there. So, why is that there? And okay. what, that's how it. did that, sure. that, that's, that symbolizes sort of the hows in the war?
1: That's right, yeah. Well, well George, uh, George became, he came to America in 1757. Um, he was very, very popular. Uh, with the colonial troops, what had happened was he, he actually Cumberland, the Duke of Cumberland, was concerned about um, d- evolving light troops with the British Army because they needed they needed people who could handle wilderness fighting. Um, they felt they they weren't as good at, as the French were at recruiting Indian guides and Indian scouts. And George had had experience of irregular troops in his European warfare, because the French used irregular troops. Uh, the Austrians had the Pandors. Um, and so he'd seen some irregular fighting and skirmishing in, in Europe. And he was keen to do this. And so Cumberland sent him to America to join Luden. And this was in 1757. And there he met Robert Rogers. He very famously went out ranging with Rogers Rangers. Um, he Robert Rogers set up a school for British officers to learn light techniques, and of course, this evolved into light infantry. There were other British officers who were also introducing light techniques. George was probably the most popular, though he really popularized it. And one of the ways he did it was that he insisted that no matter what rank an officer was, they had to cut their hair, they had to, you know, avoid sumptuous dress, they had to live very basically, like all the other troops. And if they didn't do it, they were reprimanded and that, that made him really popular. And he was, it was commented about him. And this was a quality Richard and and William had too, that with the troops, um, he he was very much one of these people who, who could engage the average soldier in the ranks and seem like, you know, one of the lads to use that expression. Um, And, and so um, he was at the head of a campaign to take Ticonderoga in 1758. And that involved Rogers Rangers and American troops, as well as, american indian troops and he was shot and killed as he approached the fort in july 1958
0: almost the first and shot the first shot fired on that in the whole battle killed him is that yeah. right yeah i think more or less yeah
1: i think i, I know it is more or less right yeah i didn't yeah. know no, <laughs> i mean I, I, I,
0: it's often referred to and i i don't think it's much of an exaggeration because he was that far out in front of everyone else yeah the, i know the scouts and, and,
1: and, and and, and uh, Abercrombie was criticized for letting him do it, mm-hmm. actually. People said he shouldn't have allowed George to go out front and, and put himself in that much danger. Um, and, and, and it actually vindicated something George the Second had said, which is he hadn't wanted Wolf and, and Howe. He said about both of them, these young officers, they're too impetuous. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they both did a great job in their own way, but... So he
0: becomes instantaneously a symbol of uh, basically British Americanness. I would say yes. this is a, a, a Brendan McConville point. This is or Julie Flavel point of you know from when London was capital of America. There's this moment from 1758 to 1773 where George Howe is kind of the embodiment of being a British of the British American connection.
1: Yeah that's um, right he's yeah.
0: he's yeah. uh he's like a if there was such a thing as british america he would be the first national figure of that
1: yeah um yeah. which
0: yeah. of course the revolution completely erases that memory uh from us but yeah he, he's it, it helps then that 1758 is the worst year of the war well okay that's 80's. right and then 1759 so that's Anis Haribus, and then 1759 is the Annus Mirabilis. This is the the glorious and year. Everything
1: started going well. Everything yeah. starts and, going well. And, and I just wanted to say, of course, in case anyone who's listening doesn't know this, they did fail to take... Count- yeah, so that's <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I don't want any...
0: <laughs> at, at immense cost, <laughs> at immense cost. <laughs>
1: that's right. George died and the whole expedition failed. Yes, that's right. So, um, yeah, and, and because it's because George was so popular, I think one of the things people forget about the propaganda bashing the Howe brothers during the War of Independence is that George was immensely popular, so they really needed to bring the Howes down, people like Thomas Paine did. And I'm just yeah. saying that as an aside. But but getting to 1759, um, both the other two brothers, William and Richard, emerged as absolute heroes because William was at Quebec when Wolfe, like George, he was killed taking Quebec in 1759. Um, but he successfully took... The Citadel of Quebec, and and William was in the vanguard. He he and and uh, the men behind him were the forlorn hopes who scaled the cliffs in the dark and scattered the French sentries at the top, shouting "huzzah!" And this ex- exploit always gets a mention in the history books when people talk about um, uh, the capturing Quebec. And it was probably you know William has what he's best known for in, in terms of heroinism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and he appears in Benjamin West's famous portrait, "The Death of Wolfe," as as the the one who looks like a a, a, a ranger in that picture. Um, so he was, you know, he became a hero for that, and even more so, Richard Howe became a hero because everybody loved naval heroes in Britain in the 18th century, and Richard had already made a name for himself at Rochefort in 1757. Another failed expedition from that year <laughs> it was a string of them, but but Richard distinguished himself because he managed to edge uh, his wooden boat right up near a fort at Rochford so that the, the artillery in the fort couldn't hit his ship of war and, and blast it and forced it to surrender. And the other British commanders were watching... For at a distance on their ships and saying he was crazy. So he made a big name for himself as a real daredevil. And then at Ciberon Bay in 59, um, he 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 made a a name for himself again, chasing and wrecking three French vessels. And the French, in that battle, the French were stopped from sending reinforcements to Canada, and that sealed the fate of French Canada. So there was William capturing Quebec, assisting in capturing Quebec, and Richard in, in making sure that yeah, you know, reinforcements couldn't reach America, so they the yeah the Howe's really had, you know, positioned themselves as you know fighting men who stood for Anglo America,
0: and they are the darlings of the popular press and of yes. their of their aristocratic circle. Um, yes, it's yes. it's true what you say. I mean, there's not an American probably fighting in the Continental Army who doesn't know who a Howe is. Yes. Um, it, it's we'll get to that, but it's a tremendous propaganda and political coup to be able to have William Howe as the leading an army in America, given the, given the strength of that name. Um, let's talk briefly about, uh, politics, um, because it's often there the house in American revolution are always described as Whigs. So we should talk a little bit about Whiggish politics. Um, I think we can't do better than to talk about the contest of the three earls. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. <laughs> which is one of the great, many great 18th century political sort of incidents in which the Howes are involved. Um, so, what was the contest of the three earls, and what does that tell us about Whig politics?
1: Yeah, I, I probably doesn't cover Whig politics in glory, really. <laughs> but, it's <okay>. it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a book of business. <laughs> yeah, uh, at, at the um in the in by, by the eighteenth century, I mean, in terms of Whiggish politics, of course, as you know, um, most British politicians would have said they were Whigs. They weren't Tories. They were Whigs because they supported the Hanoverian um, dynasty and and. Uh, and, and, and so most said they were Whigs, and, and Toryism,
0: even as late as 1760s, Toryism has a whiff of Jacobitism, a, whiff, right. a whiff of the st- bring the Stuart, the king back from across the water, that kind of stuff. Yeah, pro- you know. probably
1: entirely, but yes, yeah. they did. They still had a whiff of that. Um, but the House, um, you know, so they were they were good Whigs. Um, they were friends with uh, high ranking, well known Whigs like William Pitt, the Earl of Chatham, and the Third Duke of Richmond. Um, but in the contest of, of the 3 earls, by this time, I have to say, uh, William was in parliament uh, for Nottingham and uh, Richard was in parliament for Dartmouth. So they thought they'd get a third house on into parliament. And this was partly through Caroline's maneuvering because she was friends with Lady Spencer. And the Spencers wanted a candidate for Northampton um, and they decided Thomas was their man. And, but two other earls also wanted to capture this, because you know if you could get if you could get MPs into Parliament and, and control their vote, then you know if you could get a, a block, you could have an enormous amount of power and influence. So um, the earls of Halifax and Northampton were also vying for this with their candidates and and they spent eye-watering amounts of money wooing the voters. And, you know, a lot of times people think of this as, you know, the voters were kind of pushed around. But in fact, if you read Trollope novels, which are at the tail end of this practice, you can see that people kind of enjoyed it. You know, what did you do with your money? You know, and this it's like the voters expected to be wooed. Yeah. And, and so... This is so these like, three said,
0: speaking from personal experience, it's like an Iowa voter during the caucus. You know, uh, yeah. it's like you you know that you're like... For a brief moment, you're kind of a celebrity. you have very little power, yeah. but you have you're like celebrity, you can get something for what you're doing
1: yeah, that's right, and they expected to be given something and so so, so all three girls would have open house and you know wine and claret flowing freely and meals and one of them i you don't know how much of this is apocryphal possible stories, but one of them was said that when when they came in, a waiter a, a butler presented them with little handkerchiefs, and inside was a gold coin. <laughs> so so anyway they were doing very well some of this some of the bribery would involve buying things from people you know so you, you'd become someone's best customer to get their vote or something so they spent so much money that at least one of them i think it was Northampton never really recovered his finances and ended up going to the continent uh, to live um and in fact i have to say it was through expenditure like this that the house father became so in debt i was going to mention that you know that <laughs> because he spent so much on an election um, so when, when the contest was finally over, it was, it was, uh, it was, sorry, when it was finally decided, it was contested. And that meant it had to be thrown into parliament to decide who'd actually won. So then all the bribery went to London and it was MPs who were being wooed and whined and dined at these people's houses. And in the end, Thomas was elected to parliament through this glorious method. Yeah. This, this was, this was after he'd kind of had to quit the East India Company because he'd been, you know found smuggling so yeah. we went to a more honorable
0: profession. <laughs> perhaps more expensive so uh yeah. so this uh, this shows us though what's beautiful about it, it shows the house right at the heart of the you know, this vicious game of 18th century politics even when everyone's on the same sort of so many people are on the same side it's you know it's yeah. cutthroat and spendthrift um and as you said also carolyn is at the heart of this I mean, yes. littered geographically, even in her apartment. So let's um, let's talk about Carol. let back to Carolyn and sort of we've talked to, we've talked about her political influence. She's she's knitting all these Whig grandees together. Uh, mm. She's really wheeling and dealing from her townhouse. Um, but let's talk about what she also was reading and also her gambling, which is a this will take us to Benjamin Franklin eventually.
1: Okay. okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. her her reading list is important for the American Revolution
1: her reading list,
0: yeah, I mean, her interest in science, her interest in mathematics this is oh, this is yes, imp- this, is, right. this this is important for, for what happens later
1: she yes, because she liked reading royal society papers exactly. you know, <laughs> Franklin. yeah yeah yeah, yeah he, he I think he found that quite amazing yeah and uh, she well she I have to say she became a widow in seventeen sixty nine Mm-hmm. Um, and she was 47. Um, her her husband died quite suddenly. And and so now she was in a very good position as, as an 18th century woman because she had an independent income.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, she was too old to have children, so she wasn't going to be pestered by matrons who wanted her to marry this person or that person. She could run her own life. She was a respectable matron. She was given more personal freedom. Although it's interesting to me that she went to visit a friend of hers from the Royal Society John Raper a uh, Matthew Raper sorry and her sister disapproved of that in this she was in her late 40s and i think that kind of irritated caroline she was saying you oh, you're going there alone going there with that <laughs> so even i mean it shows you what it was like uh, then I'll, but I'll, she did still have she was able to just move around and do what she wanted more because there, she was older and there, she had the money
0: there's a paper i just uh, read i think it was in history in history today i'll i'll put in the show notes about the uh the rather sometimes lurid uh sexual allure of middle-aged women in the 18th century so there, mm. I, I wonder i wonder why i read that part of of what you – i wonder if that was part part of the thing there's you see yeah. uh, the the divorce cases there's lots of speculation about the uh anyway we'll put it in, no, we'll in the show yeah, notes because
1: I think that's right yeah. i think that's exactly right yeah i that, i'd be interested to look at that yeah um so now she um she could do what she wanted. So, in, from what I see in her letters, she started to gamble more. She never was a, a a foolish gambler, but she did like to gamble, and she would sometimes say, "The bank's a bit empty today," or something. <laughs> she loved to gamble. It one of the favorite favorite places to gamble was the salon of Princess Amelia, who was the aunt of George the Third. Um, she was very popular with Princess Amelia, who also liked to ride and loved dogs and so forth.
0: What did she gamble on? I mean, she would gamble on the horses, of course. But what what else did she? She did cards. she gamble cards? What kind of cards yeah. did you play?
1: Um, cans, I think. And uh, and uh, I'm not really a card player, so I can't no, remember. Really I had it. to look
0: up – you mentioned some of these. I had to look them up, and I think uh, I got a historic book, Book of 18th Century card games, because the rules are now so obscure. And,
1: Is it uh, in that cow? Yeah. There's one, there's one with a really odd name, and, 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 and I think – yeah, I I've looked them up too, but yeah, I've I'm kind sure. of forgotten. Them. But
0: and trying to understand the rules, of, the decks are all different too. So that's whist. The, she whist. whist, of course. Puerto Bridge. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, that's
0: right. Yeah, I think she yeah. gambled on chess too, didn't she? I mean, she gambled on. She's like a good gambler. She'll gamble on anything.
1: I think she did gamble. I on think you said. Yeah, I, I, I think already
0: you, you told me that. So I <laughs> Yeah,
1: yeah. She, she. I think she. She. I think I remember her mentioning in letters winning money off
0: people. Yeah.
1: Like, like Lady Spencer's brother on one occasion and so on yeah. and so forth. She liked to brag actually. She would brag about her winnings. So <laughs> That's what going to look. but she never she was never completely crazy about it. Lady Spencer was a compulsive gambler. Huh. And, and and Caroline would try to give her advice and she'd say, Look, um, don't think that you're going to get to the table and start losing and then stop because it's not going to work that way. <laughs> she would give Lady Spencer the advice. She said, just don't start if you can't control yourself. But um, but anyway, yeah, so now she she, she patronized the opera um, and she joined something called the Ladies' Club, which wasn't actually a club for ladies. It was the only club, it was an experimental club that both men and women could join. Hmm. And it was considered kind of risque by some people. They said, oh, well, this shows what's happening with women these days are going out and dangling about at these clubs instead of staying at home and looking after their families. But, you know, um, Horace Walpole was a member, for example. Um, and uh, so she she uh, belonged to that, and they played cards, they danced, and so on and so forth. The Duchess of Devonshire showed up sometimes at that. So she was free now to do what she wanted. Um, and I guess that brings us up to her games of chess with Franklin.
0: Yeah. So how how did Benjamin Franklin show up to play chess at Carolyn Howe's townhouse?
1: Well, um, it's the only, the only time Caroline appears in the history books is Mm -hmm. in the context of these games of chess with Benjamin Franklin Um, in, in November uh, 1774. Franklin was in London. In case people don't know this, he was in London as colony agent. He'd been there for a number of years. He was representing Massachusetts, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Georgia, and he was considered to be, you know, the foremost spokesman for the colonies in London. You know, there was no no designated one person who was supposed to speak for the American colonies, but he was considered the leading figure, um, and. So at this point, of course, we're talking about the start of the War of American Independence is about half a year away. there have been trouble. There's been the Boston Tea Party. And Franklin showed up at the end of November 1774 for a Royal Society dinner. And Mr. Raper, who I've mentioned before, approached him and said, there's a certain lady who had a desire of playing with me at chess, fancying she could beat me. And that's Caroline for you. Uh, and had requested him to bring me to her. It was, he said, a lady whose acquaintance he was sure I should be pleased with, a sister of Lord's House, and he hoped I would not refuse the challenge. So Franklin, I, I thought that was a typical way for Caroline to put it. He did show up eventually, and he really liked Caroline, and so they started playing chess fairly regularly. Um, and But it turned out that these games were actually a front for secret meetings with Admiral Howe. Um, London, you know, the West End of London was a very small place. And if people showed up, you know, at your door often, people did notice. And Grafton Street's a very short, um, straight street. So people got used to Benjamin Franklin coming and going at Caroline's house. Um, And you certainly would have noticed because he was a bit notorious by now. So on Christmas Day, after having, Come for games over and over. Caroline suddenly said to him, Would you like to meet my brother, Admiral Howe? And he said, Yes, I would. And then came Admiral Howe.
0: Um, <laughs> well, who would, was and, two, a door, two doors down. So, is there, yeah, is that's it, right. He yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, you know, this, it's funny, this story got around London afterwards because there was a rumor that their houses were connected by a secret door, uh-huh. which wasn't true. But, <laughs> It fascinated me that in the early 19th century, Londoners were still aware that these secret talks went mm-hmm. took place, and it was kind of a fake news thing. Yeah, you know, there yeah. were these stories about it and stuff, you know, what the House got up to, the mysterious House. you never do about them. Um, so Admiral Howe put it to Franklin that would it be possible for him to write up some kind of terms that the Americans in Congress might be willing to accept um, that, that would maybe stave off the slide to war? Um, and. What Admiral Howe was doing this on behalf of Lord Dartmouth, although he didn't tell Franklin that at the time, because at that time, Lord Dartmouth was the only member of the cabinet, um, although North was with him on this a bit, but he was the only member of the British cabinet who was seriously looking for some kind of peace formula in order to avoid using a show of force to end unrest in the colonies. And of course, Congress, wasn't really coming up with any the terms they'd accept they were much better at coming up with ringing pronouncements of what they didn't like, and that was causing a big problem for anyone in London who wanted to you know come up with some kind of peaceful peace formula um and and uh, it hasn't been known how Lord Dartmouth lighted upon Lord Howe to approach Franklin because. Lord Howard didn't appear to have any connections with Dartmouth as far as historians have known. And that's been commented on before, but, but what I found out by focusing on Caroline, and this is where your interest in family history goes, is that she was a connection with Lord Dartmouth Mm -hmm. because she belonged to a charity, which lady Dartmouth was active in. And she knew the Dartmouths through that. And in fact, um, very shortly before Franklin, she, her first invitation to Franklin, she'd been in the Dartmouth home visiting a sick baby. And that might sound like a funny connection, but the doctor of the baby was Dr. John Fothergill, who also approached Franklin separately for a peace formula at about the same time.
0: It sm- <laughs> and- is a very small town.
1: And, and this fits in with the private spaces and for, for politics thing too. Exactly. So, so here's Caroline showing up to see the sick baby. For she's you know she's, she was treated as a, a head of the, the Howe family in many ways. Um, and there's Lord Dartmouth there, the problems in America, and Father Gill shows up. And he, you may know about Doctor Father Gill. He was very much involved in trying to, um, you know, manage how the Quaker. He was a Quaker, and he was very much involved in how the Quakers should, you know, manage to try to stay neutral during the War of Independence. And he was very concerned with the whole business, and he was sympathetic to the American cause. So there the three of them were, and there's no doubt in my mind that she's the link, and she's the one who said, well, you know, it's possible that, you know, my brother might be interested. You know, I could approach Benjamin Franklin, and my brother might be interested in getting involved in this. And a military man would be a good idea for.
0: He, he's you know, a military hero. He's an admiral by this time, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a yeah. member of parliament. Um, yeah, those are and uh, yeah, he's not part of the government, which is also good. That's in
1: exactly life. right. And and there were and, there, and he's a hero in America. And yes. And there, the idea floating around then that some people wanted or were hoping for was that some kind of commissioner could be sent to America. This was before the fighting started and just yes. talk talk about things. and of course, it never happened. But.
0: That's what they were thinking about. So we're running out of time. I, I promise you it'll be done in an hour and poof. Okay. Uh, well, but, you don't
1: have to be too. Big, but, yeah. but let's <laughs> let's
0: uh, let's very briefly, um, with we fast forward to where we know the male house uh, from the American Revolution. The a very common thought is the howes were Whigs who were opposed to the war, and therefore William Howe was almost a traitor to the king and to the royal cause. He uh, won all these battles and never won the war because he never seized the advantages that he had after the Battle of Long Island, after Washington's retreat across the Hudson, after Washington's retreat across the Delaware... After Brandywine, all these times, the Whiggishness that we've been describing, this is just prevents that William Howe from striking the death blow to the American cause, and and Richard's culpable too. However, because they're brothers and they're Whigs, and there yeah. But
1: William has always took the more blame. Well, yeah. William right. always
0: takes more blame. So, yeah. what do you have to say to that, briefly?
1: Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> well the, the, the the idea. I mean obviously people thought it was going to be an easy war to win and the house were in command before the French had come into the war. So they had the best chance of winning. Um, And I also think, I mean, of course, if you write about a family, you get to like the family, you want to say good things about them. But if you're a commander in chief and you don't succeed, you're going to be criticized and you're going to be criticized forever. And that's just the way it is, you know, but, but the idea that, that they would, be soft on the Americans, um, in order to, you know, somehow bring them to a bargaining table. As you say, it actually smacks of treason. Um, it, it's an incredible idea. They knew the French were waiting in the wings and, and the house hated the <laughs> French. I mean, they really did. The last thing they'd ever want is to do anything that might, you know, do it, help them in any way, whatever. Um, uh, but I mean, yeah, the, the idea that they would, uh, fudge it. They, they also knew. And, and, you know, the letter. their, their secretary, Henry Strakey, wrote a lot of letters for them that I think historians have, been, have treated as Strakey's own letters. But he says clearly in these letters, I am writing the sentiments of Admiral Howe for him. And they knew perfectly well that the Americans, the, if they wanted to drive them to the bargaining table, the best thing they could do is beat them badly. You know, knock the heart out of the rebellion. There's nothing they would have liked better uh, than to do that. And one one of the things that's the, the main thing that that get, seems to give substance to this idea that they, um, you know, they, they deliberately were soft is these secret talks with Franklin. That's the seed of the whole thing that got out eventually because Franklin told Joseph Galloway, who eventually told everybody, you know, about these secret talks. And they, they, a lot of the American Tories thought, oh, well, Franklin's talked the House into thinking that they can become the saviors of the you know, empire and negotiate a peace when of course they can't. Um, so, so rumors about the talks got out. The fact that the House had a double commission, they had a peace commission as well as being commanders in chief, but all the peace commission really amounted to was terms of surrender. And they had to have a commission like that because it, it wasn't a foreign war. So there was no usual diplomatic channel for ceasing the fighting, and and that was really a lot of what the peace commission was all about. And a great deal is made of of the brothers showing up and trying to start talks with the Americans, and uh, particularly in, in works like Ira Gruber's, they're made to look as if they were running around cap in hand, desperately trying to get the Americans to negotiate. But they, they really weren't. If, if if you look at the letters Strakey was sending home, and also what the how women were saying. They knew that the war, there was a a strong feeling that that this was a war against, you know, fellow Britons. And there was a certain dislike about that in Britain. And people very much wanted to think that before, you know, the mailed fist went down, there'd been some effort to try to negotiate a talk. And the House were perfectly aware of those opinions. They were friends with people like the Duke of Richmond who really wanted this sort of thing. And and they said, you know, Strachey left notes of the meetings the brothers had where they said this kind of thing. And that's why they, if they appeared to push for talks, that's why they did it. But you can see no hesitation in their getting ready to go to battle. I mean, as, as soon as, you know, they were, they had their ship, you know, Richard allowed Americans on board during July, 1776, saying, anybody who wants to come and talk, here I am, you know, smiling, friendly, drinks all around. As soon as the, the reinforcements he was waiting for were sighted at sea. They didn't even wait for them to get there. They started preparing to, you know, launch an attack on Brooklyn. And, um, you know, the the the, the other I, the, another thing I've I've been very aware of. I mean, it's always said that that William delayed um, his, his attack on on Manhattan, waiting for the outcome of of Richard's talks on on Staten Island. But he actually, Anderson's old book. Sometimes I wonder if people bother to go back and read it. Showed very clearly that William didn't delay that at all. That in fact he hurried it. Um, what was slowing him down was tides. Um, they were they were trying to figure out how to move uh, material up up upriver. Uh, In keeping with the tides and undercover of darkness. And in fact, he was taking risks doing it. He was doing it so fast. That's why he wasn't at Staten Island with Richard. Uh, So the house really, I I think they just never had um, enough backup to follow up uh, uh, their successes. And they always knew the war in America was going to be a huge long shot. I mean, if you want to know the truth, I'm, this is me guessing. I, I don't think they'd have gone if they'd known. If they'd known, I mean, when when William went, there was no war. Okay. He and and when he stepped on board, when he embarked from Britain, there was no war, and he thought Richard, when when he showed an interest in London and being appointed to go to America, he thought Richard was going to be appointed as a peace commissioner, and that's not the way it worked out. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing. You know, there he was in America. Richard wasn't coming after all. Gage was a disappointment. They asked him to become commander in chief. And he did say through his brother, I'm not sure I want to do this. Um, But, you know, there he was. So but I I think he would have been overjoyed to, (laughs) you know, draw Washington out and beat him. You know, as I think I, I try to argue in my book, what do you think?
0: Oh, I, I, I found your view very persuasive. I've never, I've never bought all these. I never wanted to buy all the psychobiography stuff, uh, yeah. bunker hill. This, um, and it's, uh, the other thing that you, I mean, it's very helpful. The whole background that we tried to lay, I just tried to lay out, um, going up to the Caroline's meetings with Franklin to show, Yeah, you know, I, I just didn't understand where the house fit into Whig politics. You know, yeah. I, I never really, and I never really, I never really tried to find out either. So this is very yeah. help, helpful to find that and to understand sort of their attitudes. Um, and their
1: friends in London were opposed to the war. Their political yeah. friends, so they were keen to show that they weren't, you know, rushing into just brutally repress rebellion. Right.
0: That, that also tends to then. So most of the American views of the House, oddly enough, come from Tories who are yeah. writing against the yeah. House, right? Like Galloway.
1: I think they were the most um, virulent critics <laughs> were the loyalists, yeah. Well, the loyalists,
0: because you know, people like Galloway f- thought – well, they they saw that in December 10th, 1776, that um, it seemed to them that the Continental Army was in William Howe's hands. But when I – go, when you go back and do some research, on, you realize how – I mean, there were – the British army went without shoes a lot more often than people realize because they were marching so hard. There were tremendous supply problems in in December of 1775 to get across New Jersey. And they just couldn't catch up with the Patton army. Both of these armies were getting increasingly ragged. There was no, there was, yeah, it was. And and the
1: other thing is that William, I mean, I, I think he thought this anyway, but what he, what he took from Bunker Hill, if anything, was, um, he was very aware that, and I think he learned this from earlier wars too, there really hasn't been enough attention paid to his experience, that, that inexperienced troops, their morale is hugely boosted by unimportant victories. You know, mm-hmm. they think, hey, this is easy. We didn't think it would be this easy. And so he really didn't want to ever give them that. Yeah. You know, he, he never wanted to, you know, overextend the British army. And have the Americans have the fun they had at Lexington and Concord of sniping away at, mm-hmm. you know, exposed soldiers. And, and, you know, maybe in the end it doesn't matter because the army didn't take too many losses. But it does matter. Yeah. Because that's what kept it as an open air party for the Americans for the first year when there was mm-hmm. a Rajna the attack. Yeah, and then
0: when I look at Brandywine again, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I was never a military historian, so it took me a while to figure this out. But uh, they marched, how marches his army like 8, 15 to 20 miles on a hot day? To yeah. make that flank attack. And the fighting at Brandywine on the American, far American right at Birmingham, around Birmingham Meeting House is really hard. Yeah. Um, there are veterans of uh going back to Fontenois, people who've been at Dettingen and uh, Minden who say this was worse than any of the German wars.
1: Yeah.
0: Which is saying yeah. something. I, I don't think that's that. I, it, you, have to, you have to as an American historian, you have to go back and read about those battles that you don't care about like in Germany to yeah. realize that that's a serious thing. Um, yeah. And so both the British are fought out <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean yeah, they, that's right.
0: they, 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 they collapse exhausted where they a lot of them the last sort of battle line where they were fighting um, So mm. um, again, so all these things that where he snatches uh, defeat from the jaws of victory, it's just not true. Um yeah. it's, it's not true at all.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And and there's there's so much luck in warfare too. And and I think unfortunately, I think the poor commanders in chief who have to experience all this, I mean it must be an immense amount of frustration in the job. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so and and so there is, you know, there is that element of bad luck, weather and so on and so forth. Yeah. And amphibious operations are absolutely notorious for that. And yeah. that was something the house knew a lot about.
0: You know. Well, we don't have time to get into all these details. We don't have time to get into, you know, Missus Loring, or um, even how. We can Rich- Missus
1: Loring briefly if you yeah, want.
0: Well, let's talk about Missus Loring briefly. Yeah, uh, famously. <laughs> let me let me quote some po- let me read poetry here. Sir William <laughs> He, <laughs> Sir William <laughs> He, snug as a flea, lay all this time a-storing, nor dreamed of harm as he lay warm in bed with Missus Loring. Right. Okay. Um, that's popular amongst loyalists as well as patriots.
1: Well, but, <laughs> yeah. yeah, Mrs. Loring. I mean, that—that's you know, I talked about how the house character had to be dismantled; it had to be destroyed um, during the revolution by the people who hated them because they were supposed to be battle-hardened veterans, but they—they they were remade, particularly William, more than more than Richard, as, as effete aristocrats who you know couldn't, who were you know sipping cold champagne and watching the battle from far off and that sort of thing. Um, And 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 part of a a central character in the remaking of William was Elizabeth Loring, who supposedly was his mistress. And you know, as you said, it. it, I always said in my book I compared it to Samson and Delilah. You know that she's, Mm -hmm. you know, she saps his vigor, and he's too busy lolling about, lolling about in bed with her rather than getting out and fighting. Which of course is ridiculous. But and but I mean, I I actually went into um the the book thinking, okay, I'll dig up some stuff on this woman because you never hear anything about her other than she's supposed to be a flashing blonde. That's it. Um, and she gambled. And I thought, I'll, I'll try to find out more and write something you know, better. And maybe it'll be a juicy chapter. And instead, I came up against what a few other historians like John Alden have found, which I started wondering if it was even true, because there's so little evidence for their, their actual affair. There's just tons and tons of gossip. Um, and what I did find out, bothering to, um, you know, look up some details about her family and her children, is she supposedly began the affair with William Howe when he arrived in Boston in May 1775. But in fact, she was four months pregnant then, and she, did, she had the baby in October 1775, and the baby was named after um, the governor of New Hampshire. John Wentworth. His name was John Wentworth Loring because John Wentworth was a refugee in Boston at the time from New Hampshire. And Mr. Loring, the baby's father, had worked for John Wentworth in in a customs capacity. And so what I'm coming down to here is that the Wentworths knew the house and they knew the house in London. And this, this is what you get from looking from a family perspective. I only found this out by looking at some Letters involving Fanny Howe, William's wife, in Sheffield Library. Huh. Okay. So that means that what people are proposing is that William Howe took as his mistress a woman who had a chance of being introduced to his wife if she should ever go to London. That really isn't what most people did in those days. You know, they didn't make mistresses out of people who moved in their own social circles. Uh, furthermore, as I say, the idea that she had an affair right away while she was pregnant. Um, and she also, her uncle was a physician, and he'd saved William's life during the Seven Years' War, or William thought so, because he William arrived in Boston after the siege of Louisburg with news his brother George had died, and he fell very, very ill. and he he said Dr. Lloyd saved his life. Hmm. and he his her husband, the notorious Mr. Loring, the complacent husband, had served at Havana with William, so he was a brother in arms, so if you actually look at it you know you recreate people's lives, it's a ridiculous idea. I mean, I suppose by we all know how biology works, maybe she was his mistress, but it was a he was really throwing caution to the winds there you know mm. she's a really unlikely choice, and so it just seems to have been a rumor that started up and and is mainly based on the fact that everybody in New York City hated William Howe while he was there the loyalists did. And he seems to have liked Mrs. Loring, Mr. and Mrs. Loring, and he gave Mr. Loring a job. And I, I wonder whether some of it was that he spent more time with these out of towners than with, you know, New York gentry.
0: Does the rumor? Um, can, can you trace the rumor back to New York City during the war?
1: Yeah, I think that's when it started. Okay. I, I've never, I've never heard it in Boston. I've never. I. I it could be that somebody else has, has found anything on this, but I, but the, to me, the rumor seemed to start over the winter of 1777 when he was, when William was in, having these angry exchanges with Germain about how many troops he was gonna get. Um, he was getting nipped at by Washington and he was sitting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And he doesn't seem to have been very good at that. And he did seem to do a lot of gambling and drinking <laughs> from mm-hmm. what I hear. Yeah. Like there were comparisons made between him and Richard who was completely different, you know, the staid older brother. Almost on the same day, officers comparing their behavior. Um, but, and I think loyalists, you know, were angry because they expected it to have been easy, what we've talked about. And they looked at him and they thought, you know, here's this guy hanging out with his officers and carousing, well, I, which is why the officers liked him. <laughs> but it's not why the loyalists liked him. They didn't like it. So,
0: well, we could, And I think I, the
1: women started them.
0: We could go on, I, I, but I, I do want to, I want to start tying this up, um, and I wanted to ask you about sources, because right. um, you came into lots of sources that seem to have been seen, or I should say observed. They've been seen but not observed, to use Sherlock Holmes's uh, formulation. Uh, what were those sources? And they are obviously Carolyn's letters. But you just then you just mentioned Fanny Howe's letters at Sheffield. Uh, they've been apparently sitting gathering dust too.
1: Yeah. Well, there isn't a collection of Fanny Howe's letters okay. at Sheffield. There, there, there are Wentworth letters. Wentworth. And her name appears, oh. and she's mentioned in them. Okay. Um, and that's partly because I'd I'd worked on the Rockingham papers before. Uh huh. Um, so, so that was my lead into that, and and there were there's also the diary of Lady Mary Cook, some of which is um, published, but a lot of it isn't. And the how women are mentioned a lot during the war years in her diary. It's really fascinating. So,
0: did you did you work out? Did, so, did you start looking at for collections of families that you knew knew the house, and then look for their papers? Is this what you were doing? Sort of like were you working sideways as well as trying to? use all the sources related to the house?
1: I tried to do that. To be honest, there must be other Caroline Howe letters around because she, she was such a letter writer. And I did find um, some of her letters in the Palmerston papers, um, and, and there must be others elsewhere. I did follow up. Yeah, I mean, there there are letters of her, um, her brother-in-law, John Collett, at at the Huntington Library. I don't think anyone recognizes that that's who he is, but but I went there and had a look at those, and he mentions her. Um, Yeah, I mean, her letters with Lady Spencer were the center of the whole thing. Um, But then having used those and looking at it from a family point of view, the other thing that enriched my studies was going to Ann Arbor and realizing that there are a lot of personal remarks made in, in papers like the Germain papers, you know, if you read them differently, if you if you don't quit focusing just on the war and think, well what's in here in terms of what's going on in London and what he's complaining about and so on and so forth, you find material there. And the other thing was the Strakey papers, which have been a fantastic source. Uh, some of them are in Ann Arbor, but the, the letters of Jane Strakey um in, in the um Sussex archives. They're they're wonderful and they're they're almost completely unused and and I've I've you know got into them as much as I could.
0: This is Jane Strakey Is the husband of House uh, the the, the wife the wife of the, wife of of was, the House secretary
1: secretary? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So she's a more more of a middle class figure, upper middle class figure.
0: So so for um, for lay people and for aspiring students, how do you go about discovering these things? Do you say okay? This Strakey fellow. I'm going to go find his letters. And how how do you discover these collections? Um, it's we're we've gotten so comfortable with uh, collections of letters these days. People aren't used mm-hmm. to having to even track down the fact that Carol how no one's collected her letters all in one place. So we have to collect, go to the, all the people that she sent them to. That's that's new for some people. That's uncomfortable. How do you go about yeah. doing that?
1: Yeah. Well, well, the way I got into the Strachey papers was that, you know, I went to the William Clements library and um, the Strachey, you know, the Henry Strakey papers are there and, and they've just acquired more of them. So that was a chance to get into his letters. And he had letters. There were letters of him to his wife, too. And um, there I learned about Jane Strakey's letters in England, okay. in an archive in England. So I was able to look at those. But what what in, what is interesting, just in answer to your question, is that I've seen that military historians have looked at the Strakey papers in England, but they don't read the letters between the husband and wife. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure it's so much a question of digging up collections as how you look at collections, That's because nice. it's a big mistake to do that, because, you know, the army knew um, civilian writing often has military intelligence in it when it, you know, loose lips, sink ships, right? I mean, they, they used to read people's private letters to make sure they didn't have military intelligence in them. So even if you're a military historian, it is look worth looking at someone's letters to their wife and there's a lot in them. You know, there really is. And I think it's just looking at things differently and with a wider lens. You know, if you look at people's whole lives and, you know, you were talking about writing about families, if you write about families, it's much more holistic and, you know, the things you pick up in a dragnet like that, but it's a lot more work, you know, to reconstruct people's lives like that so that you're looking at how they really do see things. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, I think and know, just on a final note that re- the, the the letter William wrote to Jermaine's um, in, in, from Philadelphia saying, I'm quitting. Um, a lot of people, because that's in a collection where the letter he's responding to isn't available a lot of people just say, "Oh, it's because he heard about Saratoga," but the the letter he was responding to is in uh, Ann Arbor, and and it is more. I mean, it shows because it's a very cutting letter from Jermaine. It's very personal, and and you know when you realize how aware the House were of what was being said about them in London, and that Caroline was constantly writing them many pages thick letters about this. Right? and they really were upset and angry about it. You know, it's easy to forget, you know, to inter- interpret everything the brothers did as focused on America, but they operated on both sides of the spheres, you know. They they knew what was going on in London too.
0: Um families uh you must have thought a lot about the family as a sort of social organism in the course of, yeah. of, of writing this. And I'm I'm curious what have you learned about the complexity of uh families at this period of this class, but maybe also um, more broadly. It must have made you think about a lot about families. You probably thought about that hackneyed uh, beginning of Anna Karenina uh, more than once, about happy and unhappy families.
1: Yeah, I I, I, know, I, I know that quote, yeah, that, that family happy families are all alike. And, yeah, uh,
0: uh, unhappy families are all different and something like that.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I, I actually am not sure I buy that quote. The reason being, the reason being that I think that happy families, people don't analyze what works. You know, it's kind of like saying, you know, you you can describe mental illness, but describe normal. (laughs) What's normal? I can't describe it. You know, it's just normal. You know, so, so families that work don't get analyzed and, and the house, but the house were a very, very functional family. I mean, Caroline was obviously a very independent woman and she didn't chafe at the bit at all in terms of the kind of limitations that were on her in terms of you know property ownership that Richard would come with her if she had to sign important papers and things like that and, and the reason being because she had a good companionate relationship with her brothers um so it worked for her um and 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 I think I think they were quite in in that way you know they were they were quite an admirable family i think that the youngest sister julie not the youngest the second youngest i i suspect was either Either had some kind of mental illness, or she was a little bit mentally disabled, and you know the whole family stuck around her and really looked after her. And some of these noble families could really be brutal, you know, if if you weren't helping the project along, mm-hmm. <laughs> or whatever. But um, but yeah, and I, and I think that um, yeah, I think family as a category. Um, You don't know if you start looking into people's families, I I think one of the things I've realized from writing this book is that when, you know, people write about the Howe brothers, they always quickly say almost nothing's known about their private life. And then they hurry on to writing about them from a military or political point of view. Um, But, you know, of course, we can know things about their private lives. And I think that when you try to look at people completely in the context of just one part of their life, you really do miss a lot. You know and it's very easy to misunderstand their motives their feelings about things and so on and and one of the things i tried to recreate in this book was was how the brothers felt about dealing about being so involved in the war of independence um which was a war they they probably felt somewhat ambiguously about um especially when they were they were a very private family so in the old in the english way stiff upper lip (laughs)
0: Well, my guest today has been Julie Flavel. She's author of The How Dynasty The Untold Story of a Military Family and the Women Behind Britain's Wars for America. Julie, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's really been enjoyable.
0: Just a brief reminder if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavon, PodChaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.